Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> uh, the top line takeaways are, in this current conflict, um, China has basically almost totally aligned itself with Palestine and Arab states, while at the same time trying to position itself as a neutral third party and trying to trying to position itself as a peacemaker. Um, and it says that it stands on the side of peace and of humanity. So it's saying it in very, like, you know, grandiose terms. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners and watchers. If you're watching us on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I am joined by your faithful host, Pastor Josh Bertram. What's going on, Josh? Doing well, Will. Thank you. How are you? Oh, man. Living, living the dream. Living the dream? Living yes, the dream. of course and you are. Well, this week, um, we have um, the world's first most important William. Um, his name is William Nee. He has uh, been on the show before. He is uh, the research and advocacy coordinator for the network of Chinese human rights defenders. Uh, previously worked at Amnesty International. Uh, and he is my, my go-to source for all news related to uh, China. Um, and this week, he's actually going to talk to us um, about something I bet you probably haven't heard much about, and that is China's interest in the conflict going on in the Middle East. So welcome back, Mr. Ni. Yes, welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Will, and thanks for good to see you, Will and Josh. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, just 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 curious, like, because I've always called you William, which actually helps just because like I go by Will. But like, do you go by Will mm -hmm. also? I went by Bill or Billy as a little kid. So, hmm. yeah, feel free to call me that, too. My mom still calls me Billy. So, <laughs> OK, got it. Got it. And and the, the, the other the other question I, I, I meant to ask you the last time you were on is like, I'm, I'm assuming you you speak you speak mandarin or um but what's the other what's the other yeah, dialect of cantonese Cantonese. yeah so i I, I speak mandarin i lived in mainland china uh, for six years and i actually studied international relations at fudan university and then hong kong university um i have got a master's there uh, international public affairs um so, and then I worked at a Chinese organization called China Labor Bulletin for five years, where our common language as an office was Mandarin. Um, I did a lot of translation, and but Cantonese, I'm I'm, I'm kind of conversational, but not not great. Um, Got it. How do, how would you say Faithful Politics Podcast and Mandarin? Faithful Politics Podcast. Um, that's a good question. I don't even I don't even know. The, <laughs> Podcast with like Boke, um, faithful, like you know, uh, you'll seen the maybe. Um, so I, I'm not sure. We'd have to get a new tr uh, translation for that. Yosinyang. <laughs> we have defied translation. Well, yes. we have defied translation. We'll have, to, we'll have to rely on ChatGPT for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do. Which which we are big fans of the show here uh, of ChatGPT and our AI overlords. But um, speaking yeah. of our AI overlords, um, I want to talk a about China um, and mm -hmm. um, China 
seems to have some vested interest in the Middle East conflict, and I'm not 100% sure why. And probably, more importantly, they seem to have a vested interest um, with or or for Palestinians and um, Iran, which is it's it's mm-hmm. sort of it's sort of weird because especially with a lot of their um, you know human rights violations dealing with the Uyghurs, I I, yes. I can't seem to really put the two and two together. So so maybe maybe you can kind of you know give us the background, um, you know maybe the history and and why why should we care about this kind of stuff? No, I mean thanks a lot, Will. I think that is very very important. And I think this dichotomy of why China is so supporting um, Palestine, um, but on the other hand, is engaging in some of the most, the worst human rights violations against a Muslim majority population, the Uyghurs, is just one of the greatest paradoxes that people are really struggling to come to grips with. And I kind of want to return to that. Um, But first, I mean, at the outset, let me just say I'm not a Middle East expert. Um, so I don't necessarily know all the details of, um, you know, the Palestinian issue or Israel. So I want to get that caveat out there. And also just to say that, you know, we're at a time where I looked at CARE, uh, the council, um, you know, the organization that looks at, at, at Muslim rights. And there've been like hundreds of incidents of Islamic phobic, uh, attacks against Muslims in the U S and at the same time, we've seen all sorts of anti-Semitic um, incidents. So I just want to say, like, I, I really hope for the best for, for both communities and Chinese people as well. So just kind of get that out, out of the way. Um, but I think if you're going to come up with some takeaways, uh, the top line takeaways are in this current conflict, um, China has basically almost totally aligned itself with Palestine and the Arab states, while at the same time trying to position itself as a neutral third party and trying to trying to position itself as a peacemaker. Um, and it says that it stands on the side of peace and of humanity. So it's saying it in very, like, you know, grandiose terms. Um, but, and, uh, you know, another very important takeaway is that the Chinese media has blamed the U.S. Uh, for the hostilities. Um, and Chinese media have basically not shown any of the uh, footage of the attacks, Hamas's attacks against civilians. So, um, I mean, people don't necessarily want to see that gruesome footage, but mm-hmm. I think if you see that footage, um, you can at least, and the, the, the attacks on civilians, you can uh, appreciate, maybe not agree with, but appreciate um, where Israeli public sentiment um, and the government is coming from in terms of what it needs to do against Hamas. Um, and, uh, you know, Chinese or Israeli commentators um, who focus on China are very frustrated that China has not directly um, condemned the Hamas attacks. I mean, they've they've said we condemn all uh, attacks against innocent civilians, but they haven't specifically um, talked about Hamas. They haven't used the word terrorism. Um, so that's, I guess, one source of frustration for Israeli uh, officials. Um, and then one other really like like I said, one of the other really big points is that they're positioning themselves as a defender of Palestine and of Arab states, while at the same time, like I said, they're carrying out uh, crimes against humanity. I mean, the, the UN, uh, OHCHR, you know, the Office for Human Rights at the UN 
did a great assessment last year that concluded that the mass deprivation of liberty of well over a million Muslims, um, well, not all Muslims, I mean, some people are of other faiths or atheists or even Christians, but in the region may constitute crimes against humanity. Um, and, you know, we can talk about that further in depth. But, you know, so this is kind of one of the big paradoxes. I think um, one thing to know is that China's foreign policy, um, you know, from the 1980s onward, um, 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s, was known as hiding its talent and biding its time. So China at that point <laughs> did not want to, this was like the slogan by the former leader, Deng Xiaoping, um, coming out of the Mao era, they needed what? They needed development. They needed foreign investment. China had um, angered many of its neighbors over time, and they wanted to have a lower profile, create peace with in its in its periphery, and get involved in international institutions. China was very isolated from the Mao era. They then, you know, rejoined the UN. Um, they uh, joined almost all of the world's multi multilateral institutions. And, and have become big contributors to them. So during this period, on the international level, China generally wanted to um, not cause waves, not be an instigator of events, kind of keep a low profile. Um, so in things like the, you know, the first Gulf War, you know, China kind of stayed out of it. Um, even in 2003, with the, the second Iraq War, China basically said, we're, we're not going to you know, we're not going to object to this at the UN level and just kind of took that position. Um, but starting from roughly, well, people debate whether it's 2008 or certainly with the rise of Xi Jinping, the current uh, president, um, although people say his real title is the, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. That's where he derives his real power. He's nominally the president and he's also the chairman of the Central Military Commission. So he's he <laughs> yeah. works to the president, commander in chief. Um, but, uh, you know, but they also say that the party controls the guns in China. So the Communist Party controls the government and it controls the military. Um, but Xi Jinping has said he wants to come back to the world stage, to the center of the world stage. So in other words, China thinks we were kind of at the center of the world for centuries or millennium. And now is our time to kind of become greater players in the world stage. Um, so they've developed things like the Belt and Road Initiative, which is at this point, I think they have over 120 countries on board to invest uh, globally in infrastructure projects and communications. Um, they have now, Xi Jinping has a global development initiative, GDI, global security initiative, which is to provide hmm framework to provide security for the whole world and a global civilizations initiative, which is where, you know, supposedly different civilizations will talk to each other. Um, and so they they now have this very ambitious agenda to try to find a new framework um, for the world and world peace that they say is not zero sum. It's not colonial, you know, and they're trying to position themselves as leaders of the global South, um, and leaders hmm. of the developing world against the West. Um, and I mean, just more so, broadly. Yeah, sure, Josh. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
This is absolutely this is absolutely fascinating. And whenever it comes to China, it feels like China is like the close like it's like so it's it's so different. The culture mm-hmm. and, and everything is so different from the West, and yet we're so tied to China. We're so like we can't escape our connection with China. Like our connection with, like we have to deal with China, right? You can't not deal with China as a major superpower. It's impossible because they're just so massive and they have such great ambition. And I don't know personally how to feel about that. I mean, I understand that you would have ambition, mm-hmm. you know, and you would want, if you were a, a Chinese national, you would want, depending on where you fall, like your country to have ambition and to be on the world stage. And just like Americans like that, I, I think majority of Americans would probably appreciate that or they would not like it if that status was taken away. All right. But a lot of this yeah. has to do with media portrayals. And you have mm-hmm. the Chinese media, right, that is controlled by the government mm-hmm. and they're talking about this portrayal of Israel Palestine um and that they're supposed to be arbiters of peace how does this how does their coverage this media coverage in China compare say to here uh, and and mm-hmm. even to other domestic issues in China like how are they addressing this and and putting themselves before the Chinese people as, as arbiters of truth and justice and all that. How is that, how is that working there? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. That's a great question. Um, if I could take a step back, I mean, they have, uh, like you said, the media is controlled by the party. So um, they have a slogan, um, the politicians control the press, you know, um, and you know, Xi Jinping <laughs> yeah. says the goal, he, he physically went to Xinhua, which is their like AP, their uh, wire service, CCTV or CGTN as it's known, their kind of TV service. Um, and he said, your job is to tell the China story well and to serve the party. So, I mean, and they, they subscribe to the Marxist view of journalism, which is basically that the, 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 you know, news outlets are there to shape public opinion in a way that's, um, helpful to the, to the communist party. So from that point of view, like if you look at their nightly newscast, Xinwen Lianbo, um, which is like a half an hour long. It, the typical format is they have uh, the first 20 to 25 minutes are all the 
meetings and events that the party leaders are going to. You know, they're setting up this economic zone. They're doing this. They're meeting this foreign leader and all of these constructive things. They're leading, you know, in uh, some agricultural program. And then the last five minutes is usually chaos about the foreign world. You know, there's this war going on in Israel and, and Palestine or wherever it may be. So you come away watching that and you think, oh, we're we have this you know stability and this well-meaning benevolent government here and everything else outside of China is chaotic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the the from what I've been able to understand, the domestic depictions of this conflict have been shaped by atrocities taking place in Gaza. Um, and that is kind of the main visual coverage that you'll see. And there's on the ground reporters um, f- for the for Chinese networks doing that. But you don't really see what's happening in Israel. Um, uh, meanwhile, like a, a, a friend sense. of mine, Acho Yang of Freedom House, she wrote a good article last week looking at what's happening online. And there's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitic comments that are being allowed and also Islamic phobic hmm. comments. Um, but why is that significant? I mean, you could go on Twitter at, or X at any moment and find lots <laughs> of anti-Semitism and <laughs> Islamophobia. So, but the thing is, China has one of the most controlled social media outlets in the world. I mean, and they're if, allowing it, and, and they're allowing it. So, um, you know, I think that that's one thing that people have have brought up. Um, but um, hmm. another key point, though, is that China um, did actually broker a detente of sorts between Iran and Saudi Arabia earlier this year. Um, and hmm. so that was kind of, that came as kind of a shock to, to many people. Um, many people were like, whoa, you know, China is now like brokering peace. Um, and, you know, so, you know, some of the main takeaways from that. Um, yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah. But. Um, you know, they, they said that Wang Yi, the, the foreign minister, said that this would help Middle Eastern countries explore a development path that suits their own national conditions. And this is a euphemism that the government uses when they get criticized for human rights. They say we want to have a development path that suits our own national conditions, meaning that, you know, um, they don't have to follow international human rights law and things like that. But at the same time, hmm. you know, according to Al Jazeera, they said that in um, both Iran and Saudi Arabia were willing to let, let China play this broker role because Iran was facing greater economic isolation. Um, and Saudi Arabia also has difficult, maybe strained ties, arguably, with, with D.C. So that's that's one aspect. Another. Makes, so. Another, yeah. But another really oh, fit, big. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. We look at, I mean, the Wall Street Journal uh, reported yesterday that Hamas trained, literally, they trained their attacks in Iran, right? If you look at the media, if you look at like the Intercept and so on, U.S. bases are being hit in Syria. They're being hit in, in Iraq. Um, Hezbollah is attacking. These are proxies of uh, Iran. Hamas is a proxy. Um, this, you know, to sound cynical, this chaos for the U.S. Um, with warships intercepting drones coming from Yemen, going to Israel, apparently. All of this is a distraction that, um, along with the Iraq-Ukraine uh, war, uh, so Russia, of course, is kind of supporting Hamas, as far as I understand it. Um, 
Meanwhile, right now, China is engaged in very tense blockades in the Philippines, where the Philippines is trying to restock an island that China claims it owns. And the U.S., the Biden administration has said, we will support the Philippines. So from the Chinese point of view, they see that they're very much supporting Russia in the Ukraine war, um, although they also claim to be neutral. Um, they haven't yet met. Xi you know, has not met with Zelensky. Um, they're buying all t- tremendous amounts of Russian oil. Xi Jinping told Putin, you know, we're leading the um, changes unseen in a century and they have a cooperation without limits. You know, so it's like, OK, there's that. They are, to some extent, supporting Iran. Um, and, you know, one a case could be made that the idea is to bog down the U.S. to give them more leeway uh, in other areas um, closer to China. So, I mean, that's one one factor that may be going into it. So do you feel like it's effective? Is it so like meaning for a regular, normal Chinese citizen? Are they watching this and believing the Chinese government or are they skeptical of the Chinese government? And are they like, well, of course they're going to say this. They, they always paint everything in a good light and then, and then show everyone else to have chaos. How effective is it on a ground level, do you think? Well, that, that's a great question. Um, my, I mean, it's very difficult to gauge public opinion in China, first of all. There's no public opinion. Uh, independent public opinion polling. Do they allowed. even ask the public for its opinion? <laughs> um, I, I Don't do they think, tell the public what I, their opinion is? <laughs> I, I think the, the party is very concerned about public opinion, and I think they probably do have their own polling, um, but they don't allow independent polling. So, you know, at any given point, you can go on the internet and find comments that will be supportive of the U.S. or supportive of Israel. Um, and, you know, so, but the, the question is, what is public opinion. I mean, my guess, and this is so I just that's a caveat to say I'm guessing, is that people generally support the Chinese government's positions um, internationally. Um, And uh, I, I think, actually, in my experience, at least, many Chinese people pay more attention to international politics than Americans. Um, because there's, they have a paper called the Global Times, which is a kind of a tabloid, um, similar to like the Sun in the UK or the New York Post or or mm-hmm. National Enquirer, arguably, but it's run by the People's Daily, <laughs> the mouthpiece of the government, and it's it's entertaining. I mean, they have like very all sorts of foreign affairs issues, um, and they they write it in a very entertaining style. The U.S. is always the bad guy. Japan is always the bad guy. Um, but a lot of their s- stories about countries that aren't that important to China are actually fairly accurate and straightforward. Um, but I think because there's nothing, not a whole lot to talk about in terms of domestic politics, a lot of people that you meet pay attention to global affairs maybe more than your typical American. Um, so, but yeah, I think people generally are supportive of the Chinese government. China has called for a ceasefire. They've called for humanitarian corridors. They've called for negotiations. And I think to most people, Many people might say, well, all of those things are pretty reasonable. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So to, I think to the public, if, you know, China may seem like the more reasonable party. Now, obviously, if you're from Israel, you're saying, well, 
well, what's what kind of ceasefire can I have with terrorists who want to commit genocide against me? You know, so there's there, there's that kind of um, counter argument, I guess. But um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, William, like. Um, g- give us give us a sense of how the Chinese media kind of operates. Um, and this is sort of just like maybe just a tangent kind of question, because, you know, for somebody that hasn't lived, been in or, you know, been a part of sort of like the, the actual Chinese proper culture, you know, like we we could easily, you know, think that like all the media there is run by, you know, like Logan Roy or Rupert Murdoch or, you know, whatever sort of big, you know, conglomerate media organization. Like, like that's like all they had was Fox news, you know, <laughs> like and, and no other access to anything else. So, so, uh, so like, is it, is it ran kind of in the same way that, you know, like say Russia today, Russia today has a lot of um, propaganda, but also they've got some stories mm-hmm. that, don't have any issues. So like one could read a Russia today article and be like, okay, yeah, there's really no propaganda here. That makes sense. So, you know, it increases the amount of time that you may want to come back um, to see what they have to say about mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. So uh, like, so how, do, how does, how does China, you know, manage or regulate like the flow of information? Well, that's a good question. I mean, in a nutshell, um, uh, party, like most newspapers, um, in like the nineties and two thousands, um, you know, imagine a newspaper less as like a newspaper that we would think of it. And more of like every government ministry is maybe putting out its press releases, um, uh, about what it's done positively, you know, so it's kind of like the FDA would have a press release of we're doing this great stuff. Um, and you know, the department of labor and there, you know, imagine like if all of you could combine all of those, into one newspaper that that might be more a way to think about it. Um, but starting from the nineties, they, I mean, they, they did have a commercial, they, the newspapers became commercialized that, so they had to develop, have had to get profits. And there was a golden era of Chinese journalism in the late nineties to early two thousands, where there were a lot of good investigative reporters. They did a lot of good reporting. Um, oftentimes they weren't able to do it, in their own area. So like if you were uh, a a newspaper reporter in Guangzhou, for example, a big city near Hong Kong, you could go to an, but you you had to report to the party officials in Guangzhou, but you you could go to a different province or different city and do some really good stuff on government uh, malfeasance or corruption um, and report on that. And so for a while, there was this hope that China was going to develop uh, great journalism and a lot of good journalism was done and good commentary. But as time went on, um, there became more and more limits on that. And they stopped the, that process of a journalist going from their hometown newspaper to another to do the reporting. And it's all become very, very, um, you know, most of the great journalists from a decade ago are now doing something else. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, at the same time in social media, Um, right around the same period, well, 2008 to roughly 2013, they had Weibo, which is the equivalent of Twitter X, um, you know, just a micro blogging platform that went, it became really, really popular as they said they had over 500 million users. And there was a time where there was a lot of public 
commentary that was very sharp, very uh, anti-government, I guess you could say, or very critical. Um, a lot of legal voices, people promoting the rule of law or constitutionalism. And then in 2013, um, they really had a crackdown on these people uh, on the so-called big V's. They were called V's because they were verified. Um, so, so the people, <laughs> oh, you know, kind of like verified on Twitter where you, you know, there's the blue check mark. Blue check which, mark. Yeah. 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 Um, which now, of course, is, you know, there's contested meanings about that. But so at one point, China said they did a study and they said these big V's, their total reach is bigger than state, the state media, like, C, you know, the CCTV and Xinhua and so on. And they said this is a problem and they really cracked down on it. And Weibo is a much, much less lively place. Um, but it, it's still I mean, there's still some interesting discussions. There's a great, great uh, Twitter handle you can go to called What's on Weibo and see some of the things people are talking about. So, I mean, there still are discussions and debates for sure. Um, there's also a degree of space for very nationalist uh, sentiment. Um, so it's kind of like state control of the media, except for um, the, the far right, essentially. Um, so, you know, what, what's the guy's name in the U.S. that was sued? Um, uh, Trump. No, not um, no, the guy who's <laughs> de denying the Sandy Hook murders. Um, oh, yeah, anyway. yeah, Alex Jones. Yeah, so it's kind of like there's a lot of Alex Jones type <laughs> types on the Chinese <laughs> internet, um, and not a lot of like independent reporters or investigative journalists left. So it's kind of this perverse thing where um, the worst of the worst are given space, um, and yeah, so that's that's definitely not positive. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you know. so like how how is China? you know, trying to position itself as a bit of a peacemaker in the Middle East um, without losing their sense of irony. I mean, like, are, are, are other people, other world leaders in the world stage, you know, taking them seriously? Um, I mean, I definitely don't think America is necessarily saying, oh, let's see what China has to say about the Middle East, you know, conflict. Uh, but, but like, but about some of these Middle East countries, whether it's, you know, Palestine, Iran, Saudi Arabia, whoever. I mean, because going back to the Uyghur situation, it's it's almost like they 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 have like zero sense of self-awareness. So so mm -hmm. how how is this peacemaker role kind of being being received? It's uh, a good question. I mean, I think um, it's being received with a lot of uh kind of criticism or eye rolling <laughs> by a lot of people. Um, but in the Middle East itself, I mean, I think even the U.S. administration, I believe Blinken, uh, Secretary of State, said we don't necessarily object to China playing a role in, in facilitating peace. I think he said something of that sort. So, um, I mean, the key thing is China is a huge economic partner for, for almost every country in the world. I mean, it's the biggest trading partner for most countries in the world. Um, and it's certainly increased its economic ties with Saudi Arabia, with the UAE, you know, with Iran, with uh, Iraq, um, you know, through Israel even. I mean, is, they have actually very close economic ties with Israel. So um, 
when China says whatever it says, other countries are going to pay attention to and they're going to um, show a deference. Um, and I mean, to be fair to China, I think they have a degree of cognitive dissonance where I, I think if you genuinely talk to diplomat, Chinese diplomats, they see themselves as playing a positive role in bringing about peace in the Middle East. And they, they probably see themselves working positively. And like I said, they did facilitate discussions between Iran and Saudi Arabia, decreasing tensions. I, I mean, maybe that's a, that's a net positive, you know. Um, but at the same time, what's also very important to say is that in um, June of this year, uh, well, I mean, since the Uyghur crisis really began, I mean, it really, really got worse in 2017. They detained large swaths of the population. Um, there's debates about how many people, but estimates range anywhere from a few hundred thousand to up to two million people of roughly 13 to 15 million ethnic minorities in the region. So that's a large group of people. Um, many of them were placed in re-education camps. Um, they're called vocation education camps, but essentially just you know camps where they were brainwashed and had to learn Chinese patriotic songs, learn Mandarin, read the criminal law. Um, and there's all sorts of terrible, terrible news of um, torture and rape and other things that took place in these places. Forced labor um, definitely happened. And at the same time, hundreds of thousands of people, most likely, were then put in prison. Um, and it's, it's a little bit misleading because when you say someone has gone to prison, you think of a trial, you think of a sentencing. There's no, I mean, I did an op-ed looking at UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, where they issued some opinions. Um, there's a guy named Ekbar Asat, an entrepreneur who went to the US and um, took part in the State Department program. When he got back to China, he was sentenced to years and years in prison. Um, there's a Uyghur doctor, um, uh, uh, Gulshan Abbas, also sent to prison. China can, could not tell the UN whether there was even a trial for these people. So I mean, you have hundreds of thousands of people potentially put into prison with no evidence that they ever went, did anything wrong, first of all, but that they, there was even a trial. Um, and this has especially affected the elite, the Uyghur elite. So poets, academics, doctors, uh, businessmen, entrepreneurs, many of this class. I mean, some people call it a genocide. Some people have also coined the word elitocide for they're taking out the elite of people who can are kind of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, can bring the Uyghur culture to the next generation through culture and poetry and art and history and taking out these people. And most likely, I mean, I've, maybe potentially putting them in prison for life. So you have this incredible situation. And the Arab and, and advocates for Uyghurs are just so frustrated because they say, why don't we get any support from the Muslim majority countries or Arab states? Um, and just this June, um, members from the Arab League went to China, including Mahmoud Abbas, the, uh, you know, the leader of the Palestine Authority. Um, and they basically agreed with China's handling of, of <laughs> the situation. Uh, oh you know, so it's, 
it's it's wow. real. I mean, it's really just kind of uh, shocking, you know. Um, yeah, the Arab League visited uh, earlier this year, and you know, the state media was saying they reject Western accusations of ethnic genocide and religious persecution. Um, I mean, China has destroyed many, many mosques or shut them down and not allowed prayer. But when these people go to visits, they'll have, you know, they'll go to a mosque and the mosque is 100% full. And um, they are essentially seeing a dog and pony show that the government puts on. And um, they are just willing to buy it, partly because I think they want to buy it. you know. Um, and it's really not. Yeah. In their, it's not in their interest to really push back. So. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it it's the case, but it feels so wild that, I mean, maybe it doesn't feel wild. I mean, you know, countries are always going to try to preserve the status quo, preserve, save face, look, okay, I mean, I don't want to, I certainly don't want to become naive in my own thinking about my own government and its ability mm-hmm. to deceive or its ability to hide things or even, you know, it, it, it's missing the mark on our ideals, basically our entire existence as a country, right? And of course, there's no perfect people, but it's missed the mark pretty, pretty widely and in, in, certainly in some areas, right? What is China's in game, I mean, you say world; they want to be on the world stage, but how does how does this support of Palestine and um, like not this non-support of Israel? How does that actually accomplish what they want? How does that put them? How do you imagine they think that puts them in a position where this is going to be successful for them? Um, as this peacekeeping giant, I mean, are they even any good at that? Have they done that before besides this year? I mean, how, I'm just, what's going on with that? Well, well, I mean, China has, um, sent many people on UN peacekeeping missions. Um, so, you know, I, I think all things being equal, China would prefer to see peace in the Middle East. I mean, it's in their interests. It's in their interest to, business-wise, security-wise. I mean, so I do think that they're genuine and that that is in their interests, you know. Um, But I think that they're, I mean, some people from the Chinese diplomatic point of view, they may say we're genuine at at the UN. um, The US was the one who vetoed vetoed a resolution uh, at the Security Council for a ceasefire. And China is on the position of we're for a ceasefire. Um, and just yesterday or two days ago, they vetoed a U.S. resolution that would have called for a pause. Um, and, um, you know, it, they, you know, their wording on that was, let's see if I can find it. Um, it was very interesting. It said, uh, if, if you don't mind if I read, I know that's terribly boring. Um, but <laughs> I say, um, oh, yeah, so. So, yeah, it's basically uh, they say our position is based on facts, based on law, based on conscience, based on justice and based on strong appeals to the entire world, in particular Arab states. Um, and, you know, they go on to defend their position, saying, um, 
you know, China is by no means indifferent to the harm of, uh, against civilians. On the contrary, we strongly condemn at the first opportunity all violence and attacks against civilians and call for the release of hostages. Um, but what they're against is indiscriminate asymmetrical use of force. Um, you know, so it goes on. Um, but I think to be cynical, I think they think uh, nothing we say or do can make a difference. Um, let's position ourselves as, as uh, neutral and uh, like the nice sounding words that we can for, to win public opinion. And I think that they sense, probably quite rightly, that if Israel goes into Gaza to try to take out Hamas, they could very well end up in a just a bloody quagmire that is going to really inflame public opinion around the world, um, especially among Muslim states and Arab states. Um, and China kind of can read that <laughs> the writing on the wall and is trying to get ahead of that. And they see, on the other hand, one way to interpret Chinese actions it's kind of like negative partisanship in the U.S., where it's like, you know, it doesn't matter what the Republicans are doing or Democrats. We hate the other side so much <laughs> that that's become our, our North Star, you know, in, in many cases. Right. Um, where they saw that Biden came out very forcefully for Israel. We stand with Israel. And I think China, to some extent, is in this posture of like, being anti-American and, and or taking the opposite view and, and everything. So, that, I mean, that's one way to look at it. Um, and like I said, another way to look at it is they see, they potentially see the U.S. thinking that this isn't really about Israel and Palestine, and it's really more about Iran and a proxy war with Hezbollah, Hamas, Yemen, you know, all these pieces of the puzzle, and that this is going to wear down U.S opinion, approval in the world, and make things safer for the Chinese vision of world order, um, if that makes sense. It, it does. Yeah. You know, I'm curious how um, how you feel China, you know, is positioning themselves with all these other conflicts, not just the conflict in the Middle East. But, you know, I mean, they've like to your point earlier, they seem to have found um, a frenemy, if you will, like with Russia um, and with their, you know, assault on Ukraine, which, I mean, I, I don't see a lot of proclamations from the Chinese government saying, hey, Russia, you should probably stop that, you know, but but so so I'm wondering if maybe you can kind of talk a little bit about that. And then also, Mike, how does their their alliance with Iran and Palestine or Hamas specifically like fit into maybe their, their broader long range goal of, you know, starting a war with Taiwan or, you know, reacquiring the land of Taiwan. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is curious that, um, you know, China has always emphasized for years and years and years that every country has its right to its sovereignty and that, you know, if you criticize it for human rights, you're interfering on their, you know, their their right to sovereignty. And this is in the UN Charter. And so this has always been kind of their what we thought of their North Star. Right. And then it comes to a Ukraine where Russia just invades another country 
with no reason or rationale and in just the most egregious way. And you're like, what? what whatever happened to all this, uh, you know, um, sovereignty talk? Um, and so it's, it's, it, it's really kind of depressing to see that they're positioning on that. And they had considered Ukraine. I forget the exact wording of it, but it's like a strategic hmm. partnership before that, uh, just a few years before. Um, but the key thing there that people may not remember, China hosted the Olympics right before the, the invasion um, in February. And really the only right. world leader to come was Xi or uh, Putin, uh, one of the only world leaders. And most of the top Western leaders boycotted. So that was a humiliating thing for C. And at that time, they signed this long document on forging a new relationship without limits. Um, and there's a lot of questions. Did Putin tell C that he was going to invade? And, you know, China claims that they didn't, but um, it'd be kind of neg- negligent if you didn't ask. You know, the, the question that everybody was wondering for months, is Putin going to invade Ukraine? And C didn't even think it was interesting enough to ask that question. I mean, I find that hard to believe. So, you know, there's a question of did China have knowledge? Certainly the Biden administration provided them with intelligence saying that Putin was going to invade um, and China dismissed it. So anyway, that's a big debate. But um, I think what you see from China's point of view, a key thing to understand is that they have been subjected to sanctions, um, various government officials. Obviously, Trump had his trade war. And then uh, Biden continued that with the chip. We can no longer export high-level chips to China. And in the the world of AI, of battery technology, and all of these like high-end computer processing things as like the drivers of the modern economy, China has really seen this as a huge threat to their development. And it's created them, you know, to be very, very anti-US kind of across the board. Although, I mean, relations are getting better. And Xi and Biden are scheduled to meet up in um, San Francisco, uh, most likely in in a few weeks. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you could make the argument that uh, China, um, like I said, they claim the whole South China Sea. Um, going all the way down through all the Southeast Asian countries. Um, and the Philippines has has recently had, uh, you know, a contested issue there. Um, so is Vietnam to some extent. And then we also have Taiwan elections coming up um, <clears throat> where China, you know, that will add uncertainty. And certainly in Taiwan, I think in general, um, that the, the, that's an uncertain situation. So, I think from their point of view, they think when the U.S. is depleted of its uh, resources um, in Ukraine, um, maybe in the Middle East, um, when the U.S. is less popular or when the U.S. can be seen as hypocritical um, because because of its position in in the the current conflict, that all benefits China, um, quite frankly. Hmm. Um, So that's kind of what the calculus yeah, they're just hoping that they can somehow position themselves that they can be seen as a non, you know, as almost like you said, like neutral, nonviolent, respectful of country sovereignty and all these things and how they can somehow make 
America look bad that will help them, which is interesting because it feels like they're so tied to us economically for them to want our downfall seems like a little bit like almost like uh cannibalizing you know your um not your competition but yeah like basically like when two companies come into the the, the same company puts two things in the same uh, area and they're cannibalizing their competition i mean i can't you know the market there um, and stealing from themselves, it kind of feels like it's almost maybe a little bit like that situation. And, and you could speak to that, but yeah. you mentioned in, in our email correspondence, you mentioned initiatives like GSI, GDI, GCI, BRI. What are those? And how do these initiatives align or conflict with China's stated aim of promoting international order with the UN at, at its core. What's going on yeah. there with those initiatives? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something to, to know about for sure. I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative is now 10 years old. And this was basically um, China's, uh, well, in one way, it's seen as this massive infrastructure project where they are investing massive resources to build roads, to build dams, to build airports and um, stadiums and and uh, railways and subways all around the world. Um, so one way to think of it is that it's this big thing. Um, they've injected, some people estimate, trillions of dollars um, into this. Realistically, though, um, I, I like to think of it more as these are all things that China is doing in its foreign policy anyway. Um, and the Belt and Road Initiative is just the marketing slogan that, that they use to describe it. Um, I mean, for China, it has a, a good uh, connotation. Like it was originally the Silk Road, they changed that then to Belt and Road. Um, but the Silk Road was an overland route from China to um, the, the Middle East, and Africa, and Europe. So for Chinese people, it conjures up when China was great, when China was kind of the heart of commerce and trade, um, and it was internationalization in some ways on Chinese terms. So by building greater relations with all these countries and investing more, they are able to um, you know, forge better, better ties and gain more leverage. And at the UN, then they can use that leverage. So you know, when there's a resolution, for example, to condemn what China's doing on the Uyghurs. There was a recent resolution, and I believe it got 52 countries' support. Um, you can make the case that that's not very many relative to the gravity of the situation. So why is China able to win the influence of countries? Well, I mean, if you're a leader from Kenya or you know, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and China is investing billions of dollars, um, some people might say there's even a little bit of corruption involved. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, is it really worth your while to insult a country that is talking to you in your own language about development interests and building the infrastructure things that you need? And are you going to take a position that China cares very, very deeply about and offend them when you have no constituency domestically 
who cares at all about the Uyghurs, um, to be honest, um, in, in, let's say, the Democratic Republic of Congo. I mean, there's not it's just, you know, it's it's not a it's not a big issue in the swing state of Ohio. And it's not you know, it's not a big issue there either. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's it just all comes down to to that. Um, and I hope I'm not being too harsh to my Uyghur friends who may be listening. But <laughs> no, you, uh, I, I'm curious. The the fact that you brought up Congo, I think, is kind of an interesting um, uh, thing to discuss because, I mean, Congo holds like what seventy percent of the world's cobalt um, mm-hmm. yeah. um, supply, which is going to be necessary if we want to have this huge EV revolution. Um, mm-hmm. But Russia is also there, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and. Yeah. You know, I, I'm curious to to get your thoughts if if you think, you know, China's buddying up with Russia has any connection or anything to do with with what's happening, you know, in Africa. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I mentioned that partially when I was at Amnesty International, we did reports looking at the um, human rights abuses in the cobalt field. So, I mean, you can Google um, whether in YouTube or Google, um, Amnesty International, this is what we die for, which is our main report. Um, first report where basically we, we covered artisanal miners. So basically people who are digging for cobalt with oftentimes with their hands or with just like rudimentary tools, like a shovel, and then taking those rocks at the end of the day, then going to a market. And that market was often run by Chinese individuals who then would sell that in the supply chain to smelters who are often Chinese. And then from there, it would go into the global supply chain to all sorts of different companies. So I'm not just Chinese companies, uh, EV companies, but Apple and Microsoft and um, BMW and Mercedes and Tesla at the time. So it was a very complicated supply chain. Um, And Chinese, um, to be honest, the Chinese government reacted to that report relatively well. Um, they took some efforts, I believe, to improve the situation um, marginally. Um, so in other words, for many human rights reports on China, they'll just dismiss it outright. This they took a little bit better. Um, so I, you know, it's a, it's a complicated situation for sure. Um, but um, I think what China recognized is that EVs would be the future. They saw that many governments in Europe were putting caps, they were saying like by 2030 or 2035, we're going to go to full EV. Um, mm-hmm. And so they were looking at this and they said, oh, well, we got to get the battery minerals. We have to have car manufacturers in China who can produce those EVs. Um, we have to have uh, the, the like they, they, if you were in Shanghai, I, I think it costs something like 70,000 RMB, so like $10,000 to get a license plate, kind of as the licensing but if you had EVs, it was free. Whoa. So like they gave all these incentives. They had massive incentives for c- customers to buy EVs, which then supported the, the industry. Um, mm. And so they became massive players in the, the mining, the smelting, the ma- battery manufacturing, the EV car making, and the sales. So they, they thought of the whole thing. Oh. Like, you know, and right now, Apparently, like German car manufacturers went to the Shanghai Auto Show just a few months ago, and they were apparently just absolutely shocked. They were like, holy beep, you know, we, we are 
the China has really, really made gains, and now they've become a major player in the EV industry worldwide. Um, I personally, I have to say, I don't think China did anything wrong there. I think the government was very, you know, they were think very forward thinking. So I, I can't really blame them for that. Um, but um, right. I kind of, I don't know if we got off topic there, but, um, but yeah, I mean, they have, they are looking for these minerals and things all around the world. Um, but I, yeah. you know, so are, so are multi other multinational companies. Um, the difference is no one in the U S was really thinking about this on a very strategic level. Um, until perhaps just recently. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. um, uh, just for the interest of time, this would be our last question, but I'm, I'm curious on like, as a, as a China watcher, um, kind of, kind of twofold question one, like, how do you watch what China's doing being here in America? So currently you're in an undisclosed location. Um, <laughs> and you know, but, but you do pay attention to a lot of what, what's going on in China. So I kind of curious on, you know, means and methods, just curious, um, if you care to share. And then two, um, of the things you're watching, um, you know, what, what sort of implications, um, you know, will those things have, you think, in kind of the broader context of what's happening in the Middle East and, and China's involvement? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's become harder and harder for, like, people to follow China accurately. Um, unfortunately, in the end years of the Trump administration, China kicked out many of the reporters from, like, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, and quite a few other major outlets. So, the number of they had some great reporters too for those outlets um, who were very experienced could speak Chinese fluently, and now a lot of those people are gone. And there's fewer people on the ground, um, and so. But at the same time, we're in an information overload period where there's so much information on China, it's kind of hard to process it all. But for people listening, um, some resources that I would highly recommend. Um, there's the um, Bill Bishop uh, is a guy who runs. Cynicism, which is a website, um, a Substack that you should subscribe to. And he just has a wealth of China information that you can follow every day in his newsletter. Um, you can go to um, Seneca uh, is a, a good podcast by Kaiser Kuo, who is um, a great, great, brilliant China watcher, who's also very sympathetic to China and it's kind of its um, development plight. But um, he was also a rock star in China. So that makes him unique in that he was um, he was in a heavy metal band in, in Beijing uh, in the 90s <laughs> and 2000s. Um, so those are two really good ones. There's China Files, another good website. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of uh, so those those would be some great resources that people can go to. And of course, you can go to me on Twitter uh, or X William Nee. And I can maybe uh, re reach out with other recommendations. Um, oh, another one, just the China Global South Project is another really good one. And they cover China really from the point of view of the Global South. Um, Africa was the China Africa Project, but they've expanded. And they have a lot of really good coverage on China's um, interactions with the Middle East. Um, they have an, a sub stack you can subscribe to. But you can also go to their Twitter uh, account and or X account and follow them. Um, well, that's so, yeah. awesome. 
Yeah, I, I hope those resources are are useful. But I would just say that what China is doing is very, very important. I, I wish we would pay a little bit more attention to them and um, a little bit more, you know, detailed way in, in the U.S. But um, unfortunately, we always seem to be so focused on our own kind of crises of the day. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely, and uh, you know, it, it definitely is hard to. Take yourself out of your own little microcosm, your own, you know, corner of the world where it's your, it's all of your life and start to think about other people. And it's not, it's not easy to think about other people in their plight. You know, it's just, uh, it's not easy in, in human nature because we just focus on the people closest to us. And once yeah. you get a certain amount of people outside, Right. It's like, you know, trying. That's why you have to show all these like stories and these these horrifying images or these gut wrenching images or these images or videos that that appeal to the heart and appeal to someone's emotions, because otherwise, why would anyone in America think about someone in China unless there was a compelling reason to do so and vice versa? Right. I don't expect a Chinese citizen to be thinking about me in America um, unless there's some kind of compelling reason to do so. And so I hope that this can kind of bridge some of those gaps, the information gap, the, the, the ignorance gap that many of us have when it comes to China. We just know that, man, almost everything I look at, like it has made in China on it somewhere in my house. So that's like a lot of times, honestly, the extent to which people even think about about China. But we we just appreciate it so much, um, sure. William, for coming on here. Go ahead. Let me just give a caveat that, you know, China's a, like the U.S. It's a very, very complex country. And, you know, Absolutely. I'm a China watcher, but you're America watchers, you know, and uh, every every one of us has different views on what's going on in the U.S. So I just say that these are my opinions. But, um, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm really, really glad to, to be on the show, and I, I love what you guys are doing, and always bringing. Oh, we love it. And we voices love it. together. Yeah. It's exactly what we need. Um, instead of just increasing our our hatred towards the other side, you know. So. Absolutely, and we're we're so happy that we get to do this and and be a part of this. And and I could tell that you're a China watcher, but you're a China lover. You love the people of China, and that's how all of us should take it, right? It's Chinese government. The Chinese government is made of people and people are very exactly. perfect. And, I, I, and I they, yeah, this is a very important point. I mean, I, I'm in this really, cause I do really love China. I had a great experience living there and I feel bad for the political direction it's taken, but that's kind of where my motivation is from. And I feel a little bit bad sometimes when we see all this really, really hawkish rhetoric or dehumanizing rhetoric, um, and that, that I just don't think is good. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for that, Josh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah, we we love China as well and the Chinese people. Yeah. And at least I can speak for myself. I can't speak for Will. Yeah. I, I don't know <laughs> about Will. He can be kind of a xenophobe. I can go either sometimes. way. Sometimes. Just kidding. <laughs> He's like one of the most accepting people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. So, but sure. thank you so much, William, for coming on and – we want to encourage everyone, all of our listeners, 
check out the resources that William talks about. Listen to the podcast. Go check out the other one we did with William. Get get an understanding of what's happened with the Uyghurs. Because I'll be honest, I didn't even hear the name until we had our first podcast. And that just mm. shows you the extent to which the ignorance is there. Because I try to keep fairly, you know, although I'm not a news junkie, I try to keep up somewhat. So it's... Uh, but it's just so great to have you and, and to be able to do that. And everyone who's joining us, thank you so much. And until we see you again, keep your conversations not left, not right, but up. All right, guys. God bless. Have a great time. All right. Take care.